right. Well, you know, as we uh, turn in uh, your Bible to First Samuel, or turn your Bible on to First Samuel chapter thirteen, can give you a quick little review in just a minute, and go over some uh, go over some highlights. Maybe in case you just walked in here, maybe you don't know where we're where we're teaching from or what part, or you just can't remember or fell asleep last week. I'll roll over some things. Last week we saw. In the beginning of chapter 13, there was a man named King Saul, S-A-U-L. He's a king who is, he's king over Israel. He's a great man of integrity, but I wouldn't say he's a man of religious fervor. He's a man who doesn't really get it when it comes to what to do with God. He's anointed by God, but doesn't know how to interact with God on what he has. And so... King Saul once commanded an army of 300,000 Israelis. The army has filtered down and is now numbering around 3,000 where we began last week. He pretty much said, this is going to be my standing fighting army. He kind of gave up on the others. Most of the others just went home. Just gave up. Some of y'all remember who are old enough. Do you remember the Desert Shield and Desert Storm War, 91 to 92? The Iraqi army, was we were being told, numbered over 3 million in the Iraqi army. And our soldiers were invading, out of pushing from Saudi Arabia into Kuwait and into Iraq. Over a million soldiers surrendered in the first couple of days. Iraqi soldiers were surrendering to news film crews. They didn't know what to do with them. And he discovered, well, there was no reason. It was an army raised on fear. When you're raised on fear, of course, you're going to give over to the first source of fear that comes in your way. And that's what happened. This was an army of 300,000 raised in fear. But it was an army that had drifted from 300,000 to 3,000 And when we left last week, was down to 600 fighting men. 600 men. Saul has a son. His name is Jonathan. So everybody with me so far. King Saul, he has a son named Jonathan. And they're about to go into an inevitable battle against an army that last week we saw. The Philistines are who they're fighting. Okay, 600 men against how many? 3,000 chariots. 6,000 horsemen. An infantry that can only be numbered as to the grains of sand on a beach. That is how many. That's a depressing set of odds. This is something that you're thinking, what can Israel do? Um, I want to pick up here verses, uh, let's hit with verse 16. Let me pray for me real quick, okay? Lord Jesus, let me speak clearly. Don't let me be a distraction. And Lord, let this message be clear, please. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we are, verse 16. It's gonna, some of you, if you think, oh no, I got lost here. If you're not a, a, a person of geography in that, you're going to think, don't worry, hang in there. I'm going to break it down just a little bit, so be with me, bear with me. Verse 16 of chapter 13. And Saul and his, Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present stayed with them in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines had camped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward, and no, it's not Oprah, it's Oprah, to the land of Shulal. 
Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down <clears throat> on the valley of Zebeam in, into the wilderness. So, back up for a second. Jump back. and you did, If you could go back to verse 17. It said, you notice that the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. This is a raiding party. These are three large raiding parties. You and I are sitting here in comfort. I was going to say in weird air conditioned, but we're in air conditioned and a sound of 18 fans blowing around the room, right? We're in comfort. We cannot imagine what is going on with these raiding parties. Folks, without getting graphic, it's a raiding party. Spoils of war, which include people, are going to be greatly affected. These raiding parties have spawned out into the nation of Israel and are wrecking havoc. And they have, remember, last week we talked about garrisons. They were garrisons of Philistines. They're no longer garrisoned. They're raiding. And so the people of Israel now know at any minute their great army of 300,000 is nothing but a memory. It's only 600 defenders are stuck in a cave surrounded by a bunch of pomegranate trees. It's a place you would have gone to hide. It wasn't a place of reorganization. And so these three raiding parties have gone out. Now look at verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of axes and for the setting of the goads. So if you're thinking, by the way, if you're thinking this sounds really Interesting. Thanks, Jake, for telling us how much it took to sharpen a, an ox or a, a, a blade of a. Let me just explain this a little bit. And I'm going to be skipping some verses, but the reason I'm reading some of this is, is important. The Philistines, member, did not trust anyone to work as a blacksmith. Why? Because they thought they might make weapons. Philistines weren't dumb. They were a seagoing people. They traveled from port to port, and the Philistines were just a seagoing people till they landed in this area. And decided to be, you know what, this is where we're going to stay. We like it. And this, these seagoing people even changed the face of their God from being a fish to something with feet or something. I forgot. But, I mean, they totally changed their whole philosophy. But they had picked up these skills and these resources and metal and iron from their other ports of entry. And so they landed, were a thorn in the side of the Israelites all this time. And so they commanded, don't teach anybody else, not only the Jews, but the Amalekites, the Ammonites, anybody. Don't teach anybody how to work with metal. We don't want to build an army. And so people would go in and say, can you shine, you know, polish us up in that? And they did. Verse 22. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, Saul and Jonathan had his son with him. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Okay, it's kind of depressing. Go back to verse 22. You're about to go into battle, and on the day of the battle, what is it? There's neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people. All they are equipped with is a sling. Um, not sure I, who's going to do David and Goliath, but I'll bring in. I have a, I have a, it's a, it's from Afghanistan. It's a, it's called a buskashi whip, and, and the, the concept is the same. The end of it is a, 
it's not, I'm not trying to gross you out, folks. It's, it's like 200 feet of goat intestine that they line up in the sun, and, the, and within two days, it shrinks up. It's impervious. You can't break this thing. And so what, you're looking at something and what David would have used to slay Goliath. And what they would have done with a sling is they would have been a post, and they would have, you know, if somebody had been really good at slinging something. So the Jews had this. But you're fighting 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and a whole bunch of sand on the beach. I mean, you have a lot of soldiers you can't even count. And you're going to fight them with nothing, no swords, no spears. The only one who had anything was a king and his son. So, what's going to happen? The intentions of the, of the Philistines were very clear. We don't trust anybody. But there's a clear indication in something. And if we're doing like a leadership principle, I'd probably stop here and say, wow, look at the poor leadership of, of Saul. He lost an army of 300,000 out of 600. He has an ill-equipped army. He's left no legacy. And what a disaster. But the story doesn't end here. It gets worse for Saul. <laughs> poor Saul has lost his way. Chapter 14, verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Why didn't he tell his father? His father would have probably told him not to do anything. Jonathan is in this cave. And he looks at his armor bearer and he says, let's go do something. Jonathan doesn't say anything because he realizes his dad doesn't believe anymore. His dad is not a fighter anymore. You see, Saul's unbelief and impatience has now led to his disobedience and his dishonesty. So his unbelief and impatience has now bled into a, a whole pattern of just dishonesty and unbelief. And secondly, I would say this. Jonathan is going to prove himself not only as a born leader, but a courageous leader. And here in just a second, he's going to be a man of faith. So you have two different styles. You have Saul, who's given up, and you have Jonathan, who's about to raise up. Now keep in mind... Um, an armor bearer. What is an armor bearer? It's a guy who carries armor. Why would he carry the armor? Well, royalty really didn't carry their armor. It weighed 40 to 60 pounds. It's not not much if you're carrying chicken feed to the coop, right? But if you're carrying this for miles on end, you're not going to want to carry it. So the armor bearer was not only somebody who carried the armor, he was a bodyguard. He was a trained fighter, and he was somebody who was very loyal to whoever he was serving. Verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people were with him were about 600 men. It jumped down to end of verse 3. It says, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. They had no idea Jonathan had left at all. Jonathan is armor bearer. Remember, the cave systems were very intricate. It wasn't like, you know, a a den where you just kind of walked in one area. There were multiple entrances, and so no doubt they just slipped out. Jonathan did not tell his dad what he was doing. And in verse 6, you see, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, watch this. Now, can you imagine being the armor bearer? You know there are multiple tens and tens of thousands of armed men outside that cave, he looks at his armor bearer and he says this. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Folks, he's not 
holding back in any insulting terms on these other guys. Come on, let's go see the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So where Saul is hiding out, Jonathan sees an opportunity. This young man is now being told, we're going to go to a garrison where there are Philistines. How does this young man react? What's the armor bearer going to say? Well, I don't know if you caught the words or not, but when Jonathan said, the Lord may, meaning, I have no idea, but the Lord may be with us or he may not, but we're going to go. Not, it's, not a, it's not a real profound marching cry. And so what does he say? He looks at the armor bearer and says, you going to go with me? What does he do? What does he say? What does he react? Look at verse 7. The armor bearer said to him, do that is all in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. You talk about loyalty. You talk about loyalty. They always say, there's always a joke that says, uh, you know, the, the best friend is not the one who bails you out in jail. The best friend is the one who's in the jail with you, you know. And in this case, this is picture of loyalty. This is one who says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Watch the strategy Jonathan uses. Look with me in verse 8. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we're going to show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we shall stand in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we'll go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be a sign to us. Now, uh, can we just pause here for a second? If you're wondering, where did Jonathan get that? strategy? I have no idea. I don't know if the Lord spoke to him in a dream. I don't know what. Weird strategy. But at any rate, Jonathan's pretty confident. I don't know if he's just a vision God gave him. But there it is. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes from where they've hidden themselves. Pause for a second here. That means they haven't seen any Hebrews in a long time. Do you notice to see the word Hebrews? Whenever foreigners refer to Jews, they call them Hebrews. Interesting, last week we saw King Saul referred to his own people as Hebrews. He had become so disconnected from his people that he started, he started calling them Hebrews, like those people. And so they yell out, well, well the they finally stopped hiding. Here they are, verse 12. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, for we'll show you a thing. I have no idea what show you a thing means, but I can imagine it's taunting, and here we go. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. That's a pretty confident statement. Stop and think about this. <clears throat> You're looking at a garrison... You're standing in an open field. Your armor bearer is there. Jonathan, he looks at the armor bearer and says, and, and they say, come on up to us. And Jonathan looks at the armor bearer. There's two of them. This is not Lord of the Rings where they're going to blow a horn and like all of a sudden, you know, over the mountain comes the rescue. This is, there is nothing around. And Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and says, God's delivered him right into our hands. <laughs> what? This guy, right? And so here it, here it happens. It's a, where am I at? Verse 12. There's 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bear after him. By the way, that's a picture. I don't know if you know that. He's wearing his armor now. This guy is 
like getting he's having to push himself up so he's fully dressed in his regalia his armor bearer after him they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer and they killed them all and after the first stroke which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were a half furrow's length in an acre of land an area about three times the size of this 20 Philistines move out of the garrison walls they come to them and they meet up and they fight and these two men kill 20 men now I'll say this I'm, I used to be a guy that when I was a new believer I'd always look for justification like oh yeah through science God can prove this archaeological digs got and then I got to a place of saying God can do anything he wanted you know so I could say these are probably 20 men who were conscripted who really weren't fighting for a cause and they were you know, when you're fighting under fear, you're not as good as what two trained men could have done. But at any rate, 20 men are dead, killed by two men. I don't care how ill-equipped they were, how equipped these guys were. Those are amazing odds. Well, it doesn't end there. Jonathan knew what promises God had given him, which gives me this thought. Action without promises is presumption, not faith. Action without promises is total presumption, not faith. So, uh, being a college minister, oftentimes college students would ask, hey, what's the will of God? I'm like, well, gee whiz, that's an easy question. You know, and, like, uh, and so I would always guide them to this. I would line, line up, ask yourself, whatever decision you're making, does it line up with Scripture? Doesn't line up with what Scripture is or what the promises God has for you. And so, if, if you want to be the president of Delta Airlines and want to be successful and want to live in the biggest home and want to be, go ahead. Go ahead. Do whatever you it, it, It's not necessarily faith that's driving you. That's your own abilities that are driving you. In this case, we see that there is not just Saul in this chapter, not just Jonathan, but we're about to see a third character come into play. See who this character is. I want to say character without sounding um, disrespectful. Well, that would be the Lord. Verse 15. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Twenty men dying. Twenty men dying does not cause a panic. Twenty men getting killed is like taking 20 grains of sand out of the beach. is not making a big impact. But God used that moment to wreak a complete havoc on the people. When it says there's a panic in the camp, and then a panic in the field, and among all the people, what does that mean? Yeah, I thought all the, you know, the army would be in a camp. No, remember, they're in a garrison. They've gone into raiding parties. But you also have all the people. Who are those people? What's the panic? An army, when it traveled, had civilians go with them. All the way up to the American Civil War, you had sutlers people that sold things. If you were a blacksmith, you would get in your wagon and follow an army of 60,000 people and sell your wares. There were people who opened up saloons. There were people who opened up sewing and, and different trades, and good and bad. And so the people, the Philistine people, moved in. So if you had tens and tens of thousands of Philistines, I mean, we don't know, hundreds of thousands of Philistine soldiers, you had probably one-third that number of civilians. So panic not only set in in the garrison, not only spread, we don't know what this looked like. Word could have gotten out that, that simply said, 
the attack has been had. Nobody would have ever thought, you mean they attacked the, the Philistine, they attacked our garrison with two people? You know how it is, if you started, if we started over here and told a story and got it over here, you all know it's going to be off, right? Can you imagine being in a raiding party and somebody rides up and says, we've been attacked at one of the camps and men are dead everywhere. <laughs> what size force would have attacked a garrison of Philistines? They wouldn't have imagined two men. And then on top of it, the earth quaked. Jonathan and his armor bearer, as good as they were, could make that happen. This is the Lord doing this. This is the Lord shaking things up. And so panic is hitting. Verse 16. And the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. What does that verse mean? There's a watchman. They called a picket. They had been standing outside one of the walls. He's watching. And there is sheer panic. Dust clouds and dust storms moving everywhere from the armies moving about. This guy sees this. He's a lookout for King Saul. He runs down and in verse 17, um, then Saul said to the people who are with him, count and see who's gone from us. When they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Keep in mind, Saul had no idea Jonathan had left and his armor bearer. Because the first thing Jonathan, um, the first thing Saul thought was, well, this panic, who did it? Did, what, what, what men took off and started a fight? Who did this? Keep in mind, Saul, this is not the first time. His sons picked fights before. And so he is it, King Saul, your son's gone and his armor bearer's gone. I'm sure Saul had to look around and think, and they're causing all this? Now, the tar- part I told you about, about Saul getting worse, what you're about to see is erratic, weird behavior. Strange. Someone once said, uh, sin makes you stupid. <laughs> and it does. It just does. I, I've sat with people like, what made you think? I don't know what to think. Just, that's what sin does. This is a classic case of irrational behavior. How does Saul react? Verse 18. So Saul said to Ahijah, which is, by the way, he's a, give you a little side note, he's a priest. He's a priest off a closed lineage line. He's a priest in position only. He's not really well respected. He's like Saul's chaplain. Okay, so that's good. So this priest, I'm not throwing the man out. I'm not. I don't want to sound like I'm staining him here or anything. But he's, he wasn't a really well regarded priest. Saul said to this guy, the Ahijah, which is the, his priest. He said, "Bring the ark of God here." Okay, this sounds pretty cool. You've, you're at a cave of now 598 men because two of them have gone out and caused a great panic. He looks and he says, I mean, this is, this is great. Bring out the ark of God. Well, number one, you don't bring out the ark of God until God tells you to bring out the ark of God. Not a good move. This is, <clears throat> this is not only not smart, it's sinful. You don't, the, the ark of God represented the presence of God. So bring out the ark of God. For the ark of God went out at that time to the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. Stop right here, even though we're in the middle of the verse. Because man, you can't believe Saul's about to do what he's about to to say. He says, bring out the ark of God. Bring it out. I mean, he's superstitious. Folks, this this is... 
religious whitewash. You don't do this. You don't call on the ark. It calls on you. Bring out the ark. Let's go. Let's take it into battle. Saul's, remember, he's gotten credit before. You've seen him, if, if you were here last week, he's the one who sounded the trumpet when Jonathan won a battle. Yeah, he's going to be written. Now they're going to write of Saul forever. Here comes, in the midst of the panic, here comes the men marching the ark across the field. This is going to be written down. Bring out the ark. And then what happens? King, look, it's even crazier out there. The Philistine, I mean, you can just imagine a sight looking up from this place. The madness of the Philistines retreating at this quake. What does Saul say? He looks at the priest and he says, withdraw your hand. You talk about cheap. He says, you bring out the ark, bring out the ark. I mean, I can only imagine what's going on. The men cheering. And all of a sudden he goes, no, take the ark away. We don't need it. You talk about, where does this man stand? What's happening? Verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion. Um, I'm not going to hunker down a lot of this. We're going to start skipping some verses here because we're going to believe it or not, we're going to finish 14. But I didn't highlight it. But you notice the last line, and there was very great confusion. There is now confusion amongst everyone. The Philistines aren't the only ones walking around going, "What just happened?" I can only imagine a discussion as they're crossing back over the border. So how many did we lose? I don't know, like 20 men? <laughs> what? What happened? But now the confusion has gone from the Philistines to the Israelites. Hmm. Uh, we're, look at verse 21. No, I'm sorry. Go verse 23. Verse 23. Notice this. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Jonathan didn't save it. Saul didn't save it. His armor bearer didn't save it. The Lord saved Israel that day. And this is incredibly important for us to remember who saved the day. So when we talk about the characters of this chapter, you would say King Saul, King uh, or Jonathan, the armor bearer. We got a kind of a no-name priest moving in who does whatever the king says about bringing up the ark. I can't believe God didn't kill him right there, by the way, because God's done that before. And But don't, don't dismiss that God is the, he's the, he's the hero. I'm trying to, I keep losing my place. Verse 24. Okay, it's going to get worse. Folks, Saul, I'm not trying to throw the guy in the mud, but you talk about weird behavior. Here it is. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I have avenged on my enemies. So none of his people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And the people who entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. So let's just pause for a second. You've got to remember in battle, things are shaken up. These are gigantic honey combs. There's a lot of bees in this area, a lot of bees in the region still. These, these big hives, I mean, would have, would have fallen down due to men running up trees and trying to be lookouts and whatever and who knows what. There's honey laying all over the ground. They're passing it up because they can't eat it. The reason honey is a big deal 
is those of you who know what blood sugar means and stuff like that when it comes to that, honey is the quickest way, one of the quickest ways to infuse kind of like a sense of enlightenment into your brain when you start to feel weak. And that this was a com- this wasn't like, oh, I wonder if honey's gonna help. People knew that. People had not eaten. They were under they were told not to eat anything, they were told not to have anything, so they're passing all this up. But verse twenty seven, but Jonathan had not heard about his father charging people with this oath. So he put on the tip of his staff that was in his hand, he dipped it into the honeycomb, he put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. What does it mean his eyes became bright? That means he got clear. That means all of a sudden it just kind of went from being in a fog to all of a sudden I'm clear again, I'm focused again. And then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes become bright because I tasted little of this honey. How much better would it be if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. Verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day in Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. Isn't this incredible? As it's being written, as it's being chronicled, they're talking about retaking a garrison, and yet it writes and it reads in here, and the people were very faint. They were incredibly weak. Jonathan doesn't understand what's going on. If you don't understand what's going on, you're in good company. If you're wondering, why did he throw this vow out there? Why would the, why would the king tell the people not to eat? I don't know. Man-made religion. Folks, this is one of the first signs of legalism ever documented in the scripture. This is someone saying, this is what you shall not do that has no godly or biblical merit to it. And that is dangerous. That is why you don't preach on the gray matters of life. You preach on the solid doctrine of who Jesus is what scripture says about everything. And that is where you stand, pure and simple. Use wisdom in other areas. But for this man, for the king to say, no one eat, no one eat. This is a man in desperation wanting to look like he's had a victory. This is him wanting to look religious. Well, I look like a weak military leader. My son won the battle. I'm just going to give a religious decree and make everybody stop eating and everyone will talk about how they remember they were weak and they were faint, but the Philistines still crossed the line. This is a man in desperation. Does it get worse? It does. Jonathan, member has no idea what's going on. He takes a honeycomb. He eats it. It's fine. A mob scene is about to unfold. Watch this mob scene. Here it is. Verse 32. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Well, you're thinking, they're starving, right? This is normal. First of all, why did they go to eating all this stuff? Because Jonathan had eaten. If Jonathan says, Jonathan is doubting his dad. He says, why did my dad do this? I'm clear in my eyes. I'm clear in the head. Imagine how much more effective the army would be. Jonathan is in frustration. He's still in the field of battle, by the way. They're still pursuing a retreating Philistine Philistine army. And he says, why is it? He's doing this. I've eaten. Nothing's happened to me. So, I mean, the mob goes back. And this army of 600, which has now grown, 
we see through some scripture that I'm jumping around that some other soldiers have joined company. They, they've rejoined people who were serving under the Philistines. Servants revolted. They're insurrections. They're coming back. And now they can eat. And they're going to take every animal they can find. But they do something different. They slaughter them on the ground. That is what you would call, those who hunt know that as a field dressing. That's how you field dress an animal on the ground. Jews were not allowed to field dress an animal. You had to hang it. Or you had to put it on a stone so the blood would come away from the meat. You were not allowed to eat any meat with, with blood permeating the meat. This was, the, this was the Levitical law. I'm spitting all over the place, sorry. Good thing you have glasses on right there. Sorry. Verse 33. We're cousins, it doesn't matter if I spit on you. <laughs> then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. Watch what he does here. He says, you've dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. Well, why does Saul want a great stone rolled to him here? Because he is now going to make an altar where they can throw the animals up onto the stone and bloodlet the animals out on the stone. And so Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with them that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he built to the Lord. Verse 35, should have highlighted that one. Don't let that throw you. If you're reading this as scripture and you're walking through, you could easily misread the second half of this verse. It was the first altar he built for the Lord. Oh, isn't that nice? It was the first altar he built for No, it wasn't meant that way. This was the first altar he'd ever bothered to build for the Lord. And it was done right in front of him so he could get all the credit and tell all the people, kill everything you want, bring it here and slaughter it here. He had never built an altar to the Lord to say, thank you for what you've done. This was not Joshua saying, I saw, I wish I'll put a place of, of great stones to, to build a monument here to, to say this is where God rescued us. This is not uh, leaders to say this is what we shall do to simply say great is our God. No, he's saying, yeah, bring up a big gigantic butcher block and put it here so the blood can spill all over and everybody can eat and associate all the meat with me honor God in front of me this is legalism gone crazy this is not just legalism this is religious entrapment this is someone who is utilizing a basic knowledge of God and using it against the people for their own selves there have been people over and over time who've done this to people, which is why people get hurt in church. Because you start to see man-made religion put out in front of people. This is how you should worship. This is what you need to sacrifice. This is what you need to do. This silliness has bled into our, in, into our society and churches today. And if we're not careful, it'll be one of us if we're not held down to the, to, to the rule of what God has. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this next bit. But Jonathan has to deal with the fact he broke this ridiculous order to not eat. And so the king calls him and says, Jonathan, what have you done? He goes, well, I, I ate. First of all, I would have never imagined you, you would have come up with this. 
Who told you to do this? If anybody's, now I've got to be, what are you going to do? Saul actually debates what to do with him. So we need to roll, we need, we need to cast lots for this. Is he, is he doing this as a show to protect his son? Or is Saul so jealous of Jonathan, he was actually going to kill him? But the people rose up. And the people said, what are you doing? This man's a hero. This man saved us. This man, look what he did for us. You can't do this. Stop it. And so the people petitioned and they begged the king not to kill his own son. So the king didn't. And if you look down at the end of this, you're going to notice verse 52. the last verse of this chapter, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw strong, any strong man or valiant man, he attached him to himself. There is so much in that verse. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. I don't want to say I'm confident, but I'm going to guess that this battle for the Lord to cause an earthquake to be a battle that started on the backs of two men standing in a field saying, let's go. This may have been the day the Philistines were defeated. But what was Saul doing? Running around playing church. Bring the ark of God over here. More panic. Put the ark of God away. We don't need it. Run out into the field. Total confusion. Get back into the cave. Don't anybody eat till I've been avenged. All that drama cause the Philistines to cross over the border and in his safety and will now be a thorn in the side of Israel. It will eventually take Saul's life. That could have been his moment. But then what did Saul do? Any strong, tall man, any leader of physical nature, he attached himself to it. Remember, Saul, identified when he was younger, was a ruddy, handsome, athletic, prowess, tall man, a leader amongst men. That's what the Israelites wanted. And God said, if that's the king you want, that's the king you'll get. And now all he wanted to do was be around other people that looked like him in his younger days. That's who he attached himself with. The reason... I love looking around here when I talk. And the reason I'm kind of old-fashioned, I like to bolt in the lobby and shake hands and hug necks is because selfishly, I love attaching myself to all of you. Every one of you. Some of the greatest giants in our fellowship are those who might not ever get noticed in a shopping mall or walking through a hallway. The backs of some of the giants here in prayer, in humility and service, make me blush the moment you start attracting yourself to this is what we should look like this is should sing in the praise team this is how this is the people we should put at the door we are no different than a man who's lost his mind who was once a king now there's two ways to close this. You could easily close it 
as a preacher with no heart and say this. Look within your own heart and examine your life and how different are you than a king who lost his way and you leave here feeling guilty. You walk out of here feeling crushed in spirit to think, yeah, I've religiously faked it. I've walked in here and faked it. I've come in here and I have been singing songs when I know I haven't been reading scripture and prayer and it is easy to beat you up. But how about this? What if we recognize that you walk in here and you're weak and you haven't been in scripture? You've been too afraid or worn out to pray and you walk in here And you look up here and you say, what do I do? I don't want to be compared to this guy. Shale gave a message. Oh man, this was about four or five months ago. I'm not sure if you remember it. He gave a message when he, and it was wrapping up. I doubt he even remembers this. He simply said at the end, he said, if you're just feel like you're just not walking with the Lord right now. You just feel like you're distant from him. I mean, you're saved, but you just know there's something missing and you just feel like you've lost that spark and you feel distant. I'm waiting for what he's going to say. And he says, just pray that God does a miracle in your life. It's that easy. Just to say, Lord, would you do something in me and awaken me? So here it is. You walk in here. If you're not careful, you look at this and think, I have made many ridiculous vows. I have built altars and and hung signs on my house to say, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is that any different than rolling a rock in front of an army? By the way, don't feel like you got to take that sign down if I ever visit your home. Take it down, honey. The rock. But have you done these things? I have. How many of us have rolled up false and rested on our own strength? Ephesians 6.10, and I close with this, says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I have a Bible. It's an old Bible, old NIV student Bible I found in a lost and found years ago. And I mark all over it. It's a it, it, this Bible that I mark in is only for verses where I I circle words that didn't have to be there, like this one. Finally, be strong in the Lord. It could have ended, but instead it says, "And in the strength of who, what of His might." The reality is. The reason he looked so foolish is he was never the one that's supposed to issue those decrees. And you aren't the one that's supposed to try to fix yourself. Put away the legalism if you think that's going to bring you to a point of walking with the Lord. Put away your own efforts to say, this is what I have to do. And in the words of the great theologian Shale Ladder, pray that God does a miracle in your heart. And rest in his strength. Ask God, God, I am a mess. And I don't know where to begin.
pick me up. Lord, you're the lifter of my head. I wrote at the end of this message, and I scratched out three times. I wrote first, the Lord is the great and mighty warrior. And then I wrote, no, no, no. I want to get this out. I want to make it personal. And I said, the Lord is our mighty warrior. And then I'm like, no. The Lord is my mighty warrior. And he's yours. C.S. Lewis once said something that really made me scratch my head. He said, I thank the Lord for the sin in my life that has qualified me for a Savior like you. Now, he wasn't thanking the Lord for unconfessed, repetitive, habitual sin that he's always fallen into to say, I I elevate that. He was saying, if it wasn't for me as being a sinner, I would have never met my Savior. If you could have that kind of an outlook... If you can have that kind of vision over what the Lord can do, what can he do in your life? So, I pray this sinks in the hearts of two groups. Those who don't know the Lord just simply say, wow, how attractive, how amazing is this Lord that I can come to at any low point in my life and he's there. And how many times do we try building up our own temples on secular ways and it doesn't work and secondly for those of us who walk with the Lord to simply say enough of the legalism enough of trying to self-help myself out of this mess and to simply tap into the strength of the power of the Lord would you pray with me Jesus thank you Father for today thank you that Lord you have given us the ability to um, to come together as believers and some as visitors who may not be a believer And Lord, we can be spoken to by your word. Father, for all the times that we've ever rolled up an altar that was false, but we've made a vow that was not needed, Father, we've always messed up for those times. Lord, we're sorry. And Lord, we want to say, um, help us not to do that again. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, um, I have uh, someone I want to pray for. And uh, just a second, I'm going to have him come up. And uh, um, before I do... um, we always say this in case you're visiting we don't have a walk forward invitation in here for a very important reason we really try to instill that every home is a minister's home it's it's the it's it's a ministry it's a home where that is where church is built first and we get to celebrate the fruit of it here so it's a philosophical thing and so if you don't know the lord and you're thinking man i just want to know that person the person that brought you probably the best ministry you could talk to if that person wants to help pass it on to one of us or that person has questions they you want us to jump in that conversation we are right here to help walk you into a loving relationship with the lord now speaking of ministers in a home um rick where are where's rick and kimber where are you guys here come on rick and kimber would you come down do you mind or kimber you can come on down and if you could i want to pray for you guys we have a lot of people that come in and come out and go in but um i know uh next sunday will be Danny and Gabrielle's uh, last Sunday for, before they moved to Nebraska for a little bit. And then we uh, Susan Beeler just moved to Oregon. People, you know, that's what happens. You, you, you want to make um, a place where people know they come and go constantly in a place of ease. But this one, Rick, come up here real quick, is going to be in a place where it requires us to pray. And I know, Kimber, you have been praying for this man for a while. He is a, Rick, in this humble nature, is a 
uh, is a hunting guide in Kodiak, Alaska. It'll be gone till about December, end of November, begin December. And folks, when he goes out, he's out for uh, two weeks on a hunting guide, hunting, as a hunting guide, and it's been incredibly dangerous. You're dropped off by bush planes or, or float planes, and he prays for us. You know, I mean, he's praying for the Lord to move. He's ministering to his clients who come out there with him. But we as a church need to know you who love that, love the area, you love the animals, you love everything, your heart for just all of that, but it pales to your heart for your family and most importantly, your heart for the Lord. And so we just want to know how to pray for you. And if you can just kind of tell us just specifically how to lift you up as a church. And this is one of those moments when you're driving out a road at 3 p.m. in Dale Mabry, and you pray, you know, for Rick. And just, and anyway, Rick, tell us kind of what we can pray for. Well, first off, uh, Hold I'd, I'd really like a prayer for the faint, my family while I'm away. Um, it's difficult being away as long as I am away from them. And, and uh, But I know she's got a, a strong core here, uh, a family that loves her. And, and, and uh, I love you all out. You're a big part of my life. And I, I talk about you to my clients. And I, tr- I hope that um, you know, I spend usually two weeks at a time in the, in the bush, very remote area. We'll, we'll, we'll fly into a place and get dropped off, and there is no phone service. A lot, most of my clients are big CEOs of companies, very wealthy, and, and uh, they're out of their element. And uh, so they feel very vulnerable, and I get to spend you know, two weeks with them out in, out in the field, and, and they just rely on me, and, and I rely on them. And, and we talk about everything, and the Lord always comes up. And so... Um, and just ask that you know you pray that uh, that that uh, I could plant some seeds and that He'll use me the way He wants to. Um, and big things. And also, just pray for my family and safety for my clients and I. Awesome. I thank you. It. Thank you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Rick and Kimber. Lord, we thank you for their home. It's always been a home that welcomes us in. And we thank you for Rick and his ministry to so many young men here in the church. Lord, thank you again for the position you've given him the place you've given him to impact many lives but lord we just do pray for safety we pray lord that you keep him safe and he knows and rest in his mind that there is his church body that is lifting him up in places where there is no imminent earthly rescue but lord the same lord that can shake the ground of the philistines feet can hold rick in safety and we know that and we ask these things in your great and mighty name in jesus name we pray amen